This episode is sponsored by 909 Apparel. Now, if you've seen me in the real world, you will know I love a good aviation-themed t-shirt and hoodie. Yet, finding a decent quality top has not always been as easy a process as I would have hoped for. That is until I found 909 Apparel. Named after the famed B-17 Flying Fortress 909, which flew 140 missions without losing a crew member, 909 Apparel's designs celebrate the history and heritage of aviation something I can totally get behind. And they ensure an exacting level of detail goes into each one of their designs. Now, these designs can take up to three months to research and complete, so you can be sure that your passion for aviation is matched by the team at 909. And the great thing is, they're available everywhere. So wherever you're listening to the Damcasters, you'll be able to get a 909 shirt. So check out their link tree to all of their Amazon stores in the description below and get your aviation on. Welcome to the Damcasters, brought to you in association with the Pima Air and Space Museum. I'm your host, Matt Bone. What do we mean when we say precision when we talk about bombing? And that is a question that is very pertinent now, as we are in the age of the drone. But it's one that goes back well over a hundred years and has its birth in things like the industrial web theory, so the bomber mafia in Maxwell Field in the 20s and 30s. Thankfully, we've got someone who can help us to define that. But before we do that, we've got to say hello to our fantastic sponsors at the Pima Air and Space Museum. Stay tuned for their little visit in the middle of this episode. And of course, the fabulous 909 Apparel. It's always the sign of of a, a a good one. So... I think we need to do some definitions, James. When we mean precision in this sort of context of American warfighting, what do we actually mean? Because there's, I guess, what everybody thinks is what we're going to get to at the end of the pod, which is laser-guided weapons dropping exactly where we want them. But for the broader discussion, what does precision mean? Yeah, well, I guess precision is in the eye of the beholder. In many ways, there is a very technical definition of precision, being able to use, you know, high tech systems like you mentioned, laser guided missiles with pinpoint accuracy to, to hit a target within a, a certain CEP to make sure that you can destroy that target with a, you know, a, a guaranteed 100 percent probability. You know, this, this kinetic precision, you fire a missile, it hits the target. Um, that nowadays seems like something that's pretty easy and pretty obvious. When you look at the latest developments with the Houthi terrorist organization firing drones and missiles out of Yemen, they can fire these, 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 uh, these weapons over hundreds, if not thousands of kilometers and, and strike a target based on their own intelligence and, and radar that they've been, um, they've been using and, and gathering. So precision, technically, is a pretty easy thing today. But it's the way in which you use those precision technologies. You can use them to go and blow up commercial shipping in the Red Sea, or you can, you know, create quite catastrophic mistakes by firing precision missiles from predator drones that strike weddings or or funerals or um, religious celebrations, as we saw recently uh, in Nigeria, where the Nigerian army fired pinpoint precision strikes via their drones and and hit a, a religious celebration there, uh, injuring over 100 people. Um, and so precision, therefore, 
is really, when it comes down to it, just guaranteed destruction. It means whether or not you got the right target or not, if you strike it with pinpoint precision, you're going to destroy it. Now, when it comes to trying to understand precision more broadly, and specifically in the American context, and coming back to this idea of precision is in the eye of the beholder, precision is what a nation state wants to make of it. Well, the United States had a very core precision ethos that they try to obtain through developments of high-tech weapon systems. So let's take this back to the First World War. When were the first drones developed? Well, they were developed from 1916, 1917, and tested in that First World War context. You know, we have to remember that the United States was meant to be the new world. It was meant to stay out of the, the brutal old world of, of, of the European wars in these bloody, muddy battlefields. The United States had a military that was developed for small policing and, and bandit interventions in its broader area. So you had the 1823 Monroe Doctrine, the 1904 Roosevelt Corollary, all of which stated the United States would keep within its broader geographical area and shore up its borders. So you had policing and bandit interventions in Cuba in 1905, in Nicaragua in 1909, in Haiti in 1915. But as we approach more and more to that point in which the US comes into the war, well, you start to get this societal shock from just the amount of casualties that are coming home from deploying American troops into the European theater. So we're looking at 300,000 plus American casualties in this conflict, a war that the United States really wasn't ready for, and the public was not ready for the shock of those deaths, what they call the lost generation. There were pro we forget about this, but there were protests in the streets. You go down to the New York Historical Society, you dig through those archives, and you can see that there are, there are wounded soldiers and their families protesting that the United Nations never get involved in a war like this ever again. So all of this public turmoil in reaction to the First World War, this idea of a lost generation, well, it catches the attention of some of these fledgling air power thinkers in the United States. Now, there isn't too much money going into the US Army Air Service at this point in time. A, 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 a lower level part of the US Army, the whole air component was meant to be subsidiary to this, supporting the, the troops on the ground where possible, providing intelligence perhaps by flowing over trenches. But some of these early American air power thinkers like Colonel Edgar S. Gorell and Billy Mitchell, well, they saw an opportunity here. They saw that the public and the politicians, who of course wanted to try and stay in power, were very much looking for a, a new kind of American warfare. One that would mean that they wouldn't have to send their best, their brightest, their youngest over into Europe and to die on those bloody battlefields. And so it's here that you start to get this development of air power and this development of a new strategy called industrial web theory, which starts to become known colloquially as precision bombing doctrine. And I, when I started off this project, I was going deep into the National Archives in the US, um, into the Library of Congress uh, Manuscripts Division, uh, going through the, the National Air and Space Museum archives out uh, in, in Maryland at the Annex, um, digging through boxes there. And I found the papers of Colonel Edgar S. Gorell and all of his writings and reflections on the First World War and all of his early writings about this idea of industrial web theory, of precision bombing, and these ambitions behind it. 
And what he wanted to do was, as he saw the, the Germans and the British and some of the work of, of, of Douai developing the, this idea of, of area bombing, the idea that in order to destroy something, you have to, to destroy an entire section or an entire city. You have to, to blunt those capabilities of the enemy. In order to strike one target, you have to, to strike them all. Um, well, he wanted to do something different. Like I say, America was meant to be different to the brutal old world. And so he says that what if we could develop precision technologies that allow us to hit key industrial nodes within these cities, to hit the war-making capacity so that you can really blunt the teeth of your enemy? Say that you strike their ammunition production factories. Say you strike their, their oil refineries, their rubber production plants. You can make sure that when you do finally fight this enemy on the battlefield, they don't have the ability to have that stalemate, that entrenched warfare. Instead, when you do deploy troops, they can pass through them more easily and reduce the cost to your military personnel. And what he says, we could do all of this if we can strike with pinpoint precision without affecting the populace and their livelihoods. And so there was no core element of aiming at civilians. There was no idea that you have to destroy entire cities. Instead, there was this ambition, this hope, based on a, a moral and ethical and strategic idea of pinpoint precision bombing to destroy that war-making capacity and to reduce the cost to civilian lives. Which is an admirable approach to take. And I suppose that the interesting thing is, is some of the names that are coming up in your book in this early period are names that are going to be quite influential as we go on. So Hap Arnold's involved in development of the, the early drones. He then goes on to leave, lead the, the Army Air Force during the Second World War. The bit I found fascinating was the recurring names that would keep coming up for the best part of 40 years, isn't it? That you have this core group of thinkers who them and their disciples, acolytes, <laughs> or fringe people like my dear chap, Curtis LeMay, um, who we will come back to, they all sort of spread out from this initial group of thinkers who have this quite radical way of, of approaching air, air fighting, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. I think Hap Arnold is a great example, someone who I became quite obsessed with while writing the book because the thing about Hap Arnold is he is the, the second person in the US military who is taught how to fly. He is taught to fly by the Wright brothers. This is somebody who is at that, that vanguard, that cutting edge of deploying a, a new technology in war. Now, Arnold has um, a couple of hairy situations where um, he almost crashes and dies, a plane stalls, uh, he manages to, to bring it around last minute, but he doesn't really want to keep on flying these planes. And so he moves more towards a, a kind of a, a back room role. But that allows him to actually start to devise policies and strategies and put money in certain places that will allow the U.S. to capitalize on this idea of air power. And one of the ways that they start to think about this is with the, with the Kettering bug. Now, the Kettering bug is often said as being one of the first drones, especially in the American experience it is. It was a, an aerial torpedo. Uh, it was a, a joint project. Uh, I think Henry Ford was involved at some point. Charles Kettering was involved at some point. Uh, Hap Arnold was involved. Um, you had this this strange mix of something which we see as being quite common today, this mix of 
um, of, of politics, of the military and of industry coming together together to, to solve a problem. Well, they kind of really pioneered this idea back then. And so that the Kettering bug is, for all intents and purposes, a uncrewed aerial system. They call it an aerial torpedo. It's like a, a small biplane that's set on, on rails. Um, it has its, its piston engine with a, a, a rotor. You, you preset that rotor by, by turning it the certain amount of revolutions that you want it to travel, and it can travel at around 100 kilometers. You set it on rails, it takes off, it flies straight as the crow flies towards your set target. Say it's a, an ammunition dump or a, a, an ammunition factory, maybe. And then once it goes over that target, once it's completed its certain amount of revolutions um, through its propeller, that propeller stops, the chop is released, the wings drop off, and it swoops down on its prey like a falcon. Or at least that's what they were saying through the documents that I was going into. In, in reality, it was, of course, worse than useless, and it was never deployed in battle. In, in fact, on a, a number of occasions, it would swoop back round and, and come back to, to try and hit Arnold and the like. But it doesn't really matter that it wasn't successful because it's the spark, it's the genesis, it's the, the origins of an ambition to remove the human from the front line of war with these robotic precision weapons in order to create this, this more cost-free and accurate war for the United States. And it's something that they chase for a century. And it's interesting because the, the, the ideas behind it are you can sort of trace all the way through to today. You know, I'm thinking of the um, the name just gone straight on the so-called suicide drones that they've been deploying. The, um, the kamikaze drones? Yes. Or um, some call them suicide drones, kamikaze drones. Um, it does have a name and I can't remember. Yeah, the, Which one? The, the Shahed 136s? The 131s? Mm. Uh, switch, switchblade. Ah, the Switchblade. Yes, mm. they're, they're the smaller systems. There's a Switchblade 300 and the Switchblade 600. One is backpack launched and you can carry it around with you. And one is launched from, from tubes over the enemy. Yeah, these smart loitering munitions. And it's it's that sort of thing. We, we see it again, that sort of puts put a big thing on rails and fire it in the vague direction of your target with the, the Germans and, and the V1. It's, it's something that has been sort of developed and, and taken through it's it's i found it fascinating reading your book about how that a lot of the theories that we take as wrote today had such early um, basis on it because when we get to the 30s you start having bigger aircraft bigger bomb loads bigger range and the americans then take a lot of money a phenomenal amount of money and apply it to a part of the weapon system that they think is going to do the job for them, which is the bomb site. And that testing period, all of that gives them this idea that maybe they can actually do something different, isn't it? And the Northern you know, bomb site. Yeah. The first analog computer that you put in things, variables like your altitude, your, your wind speed, you put these into this machine and it computes exactly when your bombardier should release the bomb so that it can, it can. Uh, what are some of the, the things that the Americans would say about this? It'll hit a, a pickle barrel from 20,000 feet. It'll hit a, hit, hit a barn door. It'll hit the mailbox on the corner. And, and these aren't things I, I'm, I'm just pulling out of thin air. These are all the quotes that I was reading in the archives going through all of this. And, and it did. 
you know, you, you, when you're flying in blue, blue sky conditions over Alabama or Ohio, um, and I spent some time over there in the archives there as well at, at the Air Corps Tactical School. Uh, I got my honorary instructor's badge while I was there for some, for some of the lectures I was giving, which was an amazing moment to go back to where all of this was considered and, and put together. But when you're doing those tests in those conditions, when you haven't got you know, your air defense systems, your flak coming at you, when you haven't got raging fires producing smoke and covering entire cities, or you haven't got your smoke screens up, or you, you know, when you haven't got your shielding over the cities, yeah, you can hit the target. But when you're being fired at, and your your crews all around you are are being shot out the sky, and and you're in terrible European weather, where if the clouds aren't bad enough, you've got like I say that the smoke and being fired at. Well, it becomes worse than useless. And some of the raids during the Second World War showed that. I mean, that they tried time and time again to choose bigger targets to test precision bombing in real wartime conditions during the Second World War so that they could say that they were precise. So the biggest uh, train marshalling yard in Europe, Ruin Sotteville, I mean, they, they went to target that. Um, and they still missed the target and ended up hitting the, the small town nearby and a very small percentage of their bombs hit that target. Um, and, and this happened time and time again. So just to be clear, instead of going down that, that uncrewed aerial system route, instead of developing the modern drones that we see today, what they decided to do, because it wasn't quite working, was they, they would put this ability to try and achieve pinpoint precision, to achieve this industrial web theory, to degrade the teeth of the enemy by destroying their war-making capacity and leaving the population alone. They decided to do this by investing you know, so much money, I think equivalent to around half the budget of the Manhattan Project into the Norden bombsite, this war-winning weapon uh, developed by Carl uh, Norden. Now, that particular piece of kit, like I say, became so obsessive to those who have been working since the First World War, who've been trying to develop this very moral, ethical, American way of bombing, something that was tied to their identity. It became so core to their, their being that they just couldn't let it go. I, I, I surprised, I, you know, Bats sat down with Churchill and Churchill was, was saying, and, and Arnold was in the room and, and, and Churchill was saying, look, we've got we to deviate from this, this precision bombing doctrine. It's just not working. And not only are you not hitting the targets, but you're losing so many of your own personnel. Because one thing that they tried to do to try and increase the precision of these strikes was they decided to start bombing in the daytime. And so you do daylight precision bombing or you do low altitude daylight precision bombing. So you are you are literally sacrificing the life of your personnel to try and enact this moral, ethical and strategic ethos. And Churchill was OK with this to start with. The British will bomb at night. The Americans will bomb during the day and you keep 24 hour pressure on the Germans. The trouble is, is that when it wasn't working, um, Churchill tried to step in. But the Americans held on and they said, no, we're almost there with this. We, we, we think we've pretty much got it. Just give us give us a bit of time. Now, this continued all the way through to 1944, into 1945. Things start to wrap up in the European theater. Thought starts to go to how to bolster the bombing missions over in the Pacific. And it's here that one of these pioneers of precision bombing, uh, one of them who is, uh, is, is Haywood Hansel, who had been working again with, with people like General Arnold for a very long time and, and, and spat on trying to make sure that they could actually deploy achievably this this precision bombing doctrine well he gets one last crack at trying to make precision bombing work over japan 
can you make it work in this theater where it couldn't work in Europe? And there are a number of contested reports about whether or not Hayward Hansel managed to really get it in his last run as he's, he's testing this through into 19, 1945. Um, and he finally cracks it. And then General Arnold says, no, we've got to move on to something else. We've got to end this war quicker. We don't want to have Operation Downfall. We want to try and make sure that we can end this war. Let's bring in a different way of thinking. And it's here that we come around to, you know, this big cigar smoking fan favorite, General Curtis LeMay. And LeMay comes in and he continues to try and make precision bombing work, or at least he says he does. And instead, once he realizes this isn't the best way of doing the bombardment, he uses the Norden bomb site instead as a really useful tool to, to area bomb. It allows you to make sure you get your bombs on target in entire regions of Japanese cities. It allows you to hit the actual city if that's your target, if that's what you want to call precision bombing. And it's from there that you really have a, a massive deviation from anything that we could understand as this early idea of industrial web theory or, or precision bombing doctoring. It's here you start to get the, the fire bombings of Tokyo, all under the idea initially that we're being as precise as possible. Uh, Secretary of War Stimson gets involved. Are we really you know, trying to make sure that America is bombing in a responsible and ethical way. Arnold goes back to him, we're bombing as precise as possible. What does that actually mean? Well, it means the idea that Japan has its war-making capacity in its civilian areas. It's, it's, a, it's a incredibly diluted and spread out war-making capacity with people uh, making things in their homes. This is the argument. So in order to destroy the war-making capacity, you have to destroy everything. And it's here you get the justifications for that constant ramping up of the firebombing that takes place all the way up and through to the atomic bombardments. I always sort of have this idea of this, I've said it before in the pod, of LeMay being this arch pragmatist. And he's a problem solver in Europe, mainly because he's losing too many of his men. So he does what he has to there. He then gets sent off to the Pacific and <laughs> tries, tries, air quotes to the, to the dear listener, but at the same time, he has boatloads of napalm sitting sitting there in the dock, wait, waiting to be used on a country that's built of wood. So again, if you're going to keep your job because your predecessors only had it for three and a half months, and your boss is breathing down your neck, and you have you have sights on advancement, shall we say, in the case of Curtis LeMay, you do what you have to do. And in his case, he did. And I guess this is where it comes back to this, this long gambit that I subjected you to at the beginning about this idea of precision is what you make of it, right? Mm -hmm. So if you've got a precision technology, yeah, you can, you can slog through, you know, 42, 43, 44, trying to make this work, trying to hit the targets in Europe, then trying again in the Pacific, trying to fulfill this moral, ethical, American idea of avoiding the populace and their livelihood. Or you can use that same precision technology um, which was developed by Carl Norden, who was a, a devout Christian who wanted to reduce the horrors of war, well, you can use it for firebombing. And that's what he did, because it allowed you to destroy, with pinpoint accuracy, entire cities. And then they get something that allows them to destroy entire cities with single weapons, which, again, they spend a lot of time practicing the precise drop for it, which I found in the way you described it in your book about the training that they went to, to ensure that they, again, air quotes, hit the target yeah. with, with, an, with an atomic weapon. It, 
this shift, and I think this is this is my favorite part of your book, is the arrival of the bomb and yeah. how they still try to use precise and precision in language with a weapon that in and of itself is incredibly imprecise just due to the amount of energy that it releases. I appreciate you saying that because you know, a lot of the history that I've mentioned so far has been well documented. Conrad Crane, Tammy Davis Biddle, for those who enjoyed Malcolm Gladwell's book, Bomber Mafia, you know, all of this has is something that has been documented over time. Not 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 a not a book we recommend often though. <laughs> the the um say no more. The <laughs> the thing that I think the book adds to this period of history is this discussion around the atomic bomb. Now imagine you've had this core ethos, this strategic ethos, this 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 this, this ambition that is part of your entire organization and its purpose, this precision bombing. How do you let that go? Is it something that is completely just severed and then you move towards and you adopt these German and British ideas um, of in order to destroy something, you have to destroy everything? Well, strategy isn't that simple and politics isn't that simple either. And so you have a lot of different people who are trying to, to influence the way in which the atomic bombs are dropped. Now, some of them, do want to take revenge and, and destroy as much of Japan as is humanly possible. Others know that you're going to have a, a million losses on the ground during Operation Downfall, and so they want to try and avoid that. And then there's some who think, well, actually, surely, if precision bombing ever mattered at any point in history, and if the Norden bombsite is ever going to work, then it's with atomic weapons. Because you want to make sure that all of that investment that you've had in the Manhattan Project, well, first of all, you want to make sure that that bomb hits the target and doesn't tail off and go somewhere else and become rendered completely useless. But you also want to make sure that you don't want to drop loads of them. You want to be able to destroy that city, destroy the target that you've set in that city. And there were these illusions at the time. And I, I think they're well-meaning illusions because there was lots of misunderstandings or gaps in the knowledge about how powerful the bomb would be, how far the, the blast cloud and the radiation would spread, or if there was any radiation at all and the lingering effects of that. And so when you look into the political discussions, the Truman Diaries, the Simpson, Stimson Diaries, you look at some of the, the strategic considerations that were taking place. It was very much, in, in some channels at least, that this should be the epitome of a precision bombing strike. So where do they target in Hiroshima? Well, they target the, the Second Army headquarters, uh, the, the, the bridge nearby over near Hiroshima Castle. I was, I was there last year standing at that very spot that the bomb airburst over the city. Why do they want to strike a, a military target? Why does it matter with atomic weapons? Well, Truman's justification is that this is a, a, a military target. It is a, a part of the, the, the core part of Japanese defense, and it is aimed at a military target and, and, and not civilians, of course. How is that even comprehensible these days to, to, to think about this? Well, it's an incredibly flawed way of thinking, and precision becomes this amorphous, almost moving target at this point, and, and everything seems to become precision at this point. But there are weird little quirky things that happen. So Tibbetts, who everyone will know, is, 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 is piloting the Enola Gay at this point. He is the United States' most experienced precision bombing pilot, most experienced and most effective. Why choose him? Well, so that he gets the bomb to hit the target. Now, he's told 
on numerous occasions not to use the newer version of the Norden bomb site and, and, and to bomb blind, but instead to make sure that you have visual confirmation on a clear day through a gap in the clouds to make sure that you hit that target again with that pinpoint precision. And he's told to turn back if he can't do this. And on the bombing runs in the practice, they're, they're doing this time and time and time again. It's what the crews are briefed on. This is a precision bombing run if there has ever been one. And that's what they do. And they strike that target within 500 meters. And it's one of the most precise bombardments of the Second World War. But again, back to this point, precision is what you make of it. Just because you hit the target doesn't mean it's moral, ethical, precise, and avoid civilians. Instead, the most precise bombardment of the Second World War is the most destructive one. And I think I could entirely rename this book as being precision versus destruction. Because isn't that the American way of war? It's this internal struggle to try and decide whether or not this moral, ethical, precise way of deploying war, this cost-free war, this surgical war, this perfect war that we hear about to this very day, whether that works or whether or not it needs to be intense bouts of extreme destruction to bring wars to an end quickly. Which one is not only better for the United States, but which one is also in line with that American ethos to be moral, ethical in war. Well, when they figure that out, I guess I'll have to do another podcast. On it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll let you know. I will let you know. But these are the debates that happen today. Yeah, and it, it's 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 fascinating going through this sort of time period. Is this is the weapon that changes everything, but at the same time doesn't really change anything either, because you have the ultimate destructive power you have the secrecy around it and, and again the fascinating bits i'm reading in your book is lines such as you know the perceived certainties of long-held bombing precision and an increased reliance on the atomic bomb which is a contradiction in terms and yeah. you also have the security council you have the the effort nobody's really talking to each other because nobody's sure of what clearances they have to talk about the ultimate secret weapon than allowed yeah yeah. So so the, there's no clear plan for it. And nobody actually knows how many of them are. That made me chuckle when I got to that bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely. We're going to take a quick break so that we can get the latest from the Pima Air and Space Museum with Head of Collections, Andrew Bowley. Here we're at the Pima Air and Space Museum with our Douglas A-20G Havoc. Um, the A-20 Havoc was an attack aircraft light bomber of World War II. Um, originally built and designed with a glass nose with a bombardier. Um, in the Pacific Theater, like B-25s, Pappy Gunn came up with this idea of manning these aircraft with solid noses and a bunch of machine guns for doing strafing attacks on Japanese airfields and attacking Japanese shipping. Um, this aircraft is an actual combat veteran. It flew with the 89th Bomb Squadron in New Guinea uh, on a mission. Uh, I think bombing WEWAC, it was damaged and made an emergency landing in a swamp in New Guinea. The crew was recovered and the aircraft sat there pretty much forever until it was found in the 80s and in the early 90s it was recovered by the Royal Australian Air Force. This A-20 with another one that they had, um, they restored the one Helen Pelican which was another combat veteran from the Pacific. Um, they used a lot of the parts from this aircraft for that aircraft. Then actually went to a civilian owner, and then we ended up buying from that civilian owner and finished up the restoration, put it on display here. 
it's unique. It's unique aircraft in the fact there's only about four, if I recall, A20 Havocs anywhere on display in the world. Um, with one in a private collection, one at the Air Force Museum, one here, and one in a private collection in Russia. But uh, I'd say it's always been one of my favorite aircraft, I think just because of the, you know, lack of them as survivors and also just seeing a lot of those cool photos from World War II where you see these A-20s coming in low over a ball, bombing Japanese cruisers and, and transports, and, you know, they're, like, literally flying right, like, at mass height over these ships. Um, so I just always found it to be a pretty cool airplane. To learn more about what is on display and what events are coming up at the Pima Air and Space Museum in Tucson, Arizona, please do check out their website at www.pimaair.org. And now, back to the show. So so what, what are the early plans? Because we get, there's a lot of names of plans in your book and lots of acronyms thank you oh, yeah. thankfully yeah thankfully there is a glossary in the back dear listener when we get to things like pincher broiler off tackle plans when they start trying to figure out how to target russia and the soviet union that's very different because the bit that i kind of struggled with when you were quoting from some of the documentation was they're suddenly expecting to fly a very, very long way in B-29s and B-50s into a country that does not want them there at all. But that doesn't seem to come out. They're just talking about targeting and then lack of intelligence for those targets. But it just seems that they've gone straight into the bomber, we'll get through, and away they go. It's strange, isn't it? So not only would you not expect to find uh, to, to find a discourse around precision bombing, during the discussions around the atomic bombardments, but you would expect any discussion around precision bombing to disappear after the Second World War. I mean, it is quite widely seen at this point as being just one of the worst failures. Um, You know, when you look at the European bombing theatre, when you look at the abandonment of it, the amount of money that's invested in it, the amount of lives that are lost because of it, who in their right mind is going to talk about precision bombing again after this point? It is not technologically achievable in war. And there's, there's so many findings that seem to support that at this point. Well, that's until Spatz sits down with Goering and Goering said, no, the Americans were amazing and they, they, they managed to just destroy everything so much better than the British. And him and Arnold are like, oh, well, actually, maybe we were right and we're vindicated and this is it. And so what we can do is when Sorry, we come to... Why, the, why, why wasn't there someone in the room going... Guys, he was telling you what you wanted to hear. <laughs> because they wanted to hear it. Yeah. And, and, then there's, and then there is some support in the US Strategic Bombing Survey that, that kind of says, well, precision wasn't that bad when it came to some of the, the oil processing sites. And it was able to, to, to blunt some of the capacity here and there. And you can cherry pick some of the stats to, to support maybe precision bombing wasn't that bad. And... It's not like the, the personnel who were serving during the Second World War disappear in, in, in late 1945. And in 1946 and 47 and 48 and 49, we start fresh with a whole new pair of hands to take this over. It's the same people. You know, General Arnold, who's taught to fly by the Wright brothers, who's developing this, this, this first drone during the First World War. Well, he's now in, in charge. And he's not only in, in charge of a U.S. Army Air Service or a U.S. Army Air Force. He's in charge of the newly independent U.S. Air Force. 
and they want to be responsible for this nuclear power and the ability to deploy these weapons in war, and they want to develop strategies that will allow them to do that. The trouble is, immediately at this point, Truman is so invested in the creation of the United Nations. You know, he, he's again going through the archives. He's, he's writing letters to uh, Clark Eichelberger, who's the, the, the U.S. Um, representative at these United Nations discussions. He says this will work. There'll be peace in our times. And he, he doesn't dare think about creating nuclear strategies that will allow the United States to create any idea of a deterrence posture or anything like this or mutually assured destruction. All of these discussions are down the road. And so what Arnold did, also as the, the, the chair of the, the Joint Chief of Staff as well, he sits down with him and his contemporaries and he's like, well, what do we have and what can we develop and what can we do pretty easily and pretty quickly in an effective way to have something in place should we use it? Um, and this is where they bring back in the core elements of precision bombing doctrine. And so when you have the, the first war plan in, in, in 1946, you've got, you've got Pincher there. It's all about blunting that enemy war-making capacity and hitting those, those either whether or not in the future the Soviet Union might have a atomic capacity, maybe blunting those capabilities, but also destroying its war-making industry and hitting military targets. And they have different priorities, like circles of priority. And the priority is to make sure they're only hitting war-making capacity and to, to avoid those mass destruction of, of the cities. A couple of reasons for that. Uh, again, we're going back to this idea that America does war differently. It, it, it's moral, it's ethical. You don't want to destroy entire cities and their populations because maybe one day they'll come and destroy yours, but also your, your resources are finite. You don't know how many atomic bombs that you've got at this point. And so you want to make sure you hit the target with, with precision. And so they keep doing this. And you go through, like you say, pincher and broiler and off tackle. And really, when it comes down to it, they, they see that they need to invest far more in new technologies and new strategic thoughts around this in order to make it work. And they think they've got time, right? You know, predictions around the Soviet Union getting the bomber a decade uh, ahead. They don't think they're going to get it by, by, by 1949 at this point. And so they're, they're, they're playing around with these ideas and trying to massage precision into the thinking so that when it's finally achievable, they'll be able to, to, to deploy it. And one thing that Arms does to try and, and make this a reality is just before he, he retires, he takes uh, $10 million from the US Air Force budget and he puts it into this, this new think tank, the RAND Corporation, standing for Research and Development. Uh, listeners might remember some of the kind of the spoofs around the RAND Corporation from Dr. Strangelove, um, some of the key figures there in, in inspired Kubrick in, uh, in, in that film. And I, I, Thanks to the Kubrick family for allowing me to go into into his personal archives at the um, Arts and Communications College in London, because that was uh, enlightening to see some of the discussions he had with them uh, around that time. But th this this was this was kind of the, the the core point for them was to just try and bide their time and come up with the high tech fixes to make this happen. And so establishing the Rand Corporation, bringing in civilian defence intellectuals who could help critique and develop these systems, work on the mathematical problems of, of dropping bombs or sending missiles over long distances and hitting the target, well, this was the place that they were going to do it. And then Arnold retires, and then he, he suddenly dies very quickly just as he releases his, his memoirs. And so the baton is passed on through to the RAND Corporation, this baton to try and achieve precision bombing. Meanwhile, you've got his protege taking... The completely different op option as good old 
Do you think, do you think LeMay is Arnold's protege? I think he likes to think he is. Do you think so? I couldn't think mm. of two very different people, really. I, you see, in, in all my reading on this, and I, I do have to go back and, and, and read the LeMay biographies, because the more, which I, I think I can see over your shoulder. Actually. Yeah, well, what have I got? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple. There's a few. And yeah. yeah. But I, I just I just see this as in my history of, of working with places like British Airways, there's always the sort of the boss and the hatchet man. And I always sort of see LeMay as the hatchet man, the the guy that's 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 there to do to do the job. And always when those people rise to the top and get the top job, they never tend to last very long. But LeMay kind of does. Yeah, and he does, does it by, as you bring in his book, coming up with his own plan and being able to corner the market on funding, which is is something I kind of always figured with with Sack, but then reading through your book, it was it was made very clear that by being the only people that can deliver these weapons, they therefore need all the money, which then explains all the weird and wonderful things that he he tried to tried to get built all the way up to the the Valkyrie, which I kind of wish yeah. happened. Of, of course, and and having that that constant air presence, you know, that, that operational readiness to to be able to to make sure you've got planes in the air at all times, so that if you you are hit by the Soviet Union, then you are you are ready to go to to, to retaliate. I mean, Lemay is is fascinating to me. He's somebody who doesn't go through the same stream of training as your Arnold's or your Spatz's or your Ekers or your Hansels, right? They go through the Air Corps Tactical School um, or they're trained at, at West Point and, and they, they, they're surrounded by this, this idea of, of precision bombing being the only way the United States is going to do it. LeMay doesn't take that track. If I remember correctly, he goes up through a, a, a reservist route and... Uh, and Artillery man, wasn't he? There you go. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, there you are. Doesn't that, that sum it up? You know, the nuts and bolts way of doing war from the ground up. This isn't a, a lofty officer thinking about these political, moral, ethical, strategic aims. This is somebody who's trying to get war done the best way that he knows how. And if anything, he's looking at this precision. He thinks it's a, a real dirty word. I mean, there's some choice words in the book by <laughs> LeMay about what he thinks about precision bombing and the attempts to try and achieve it. And he doesn't want to make those mistakes ever again because, you know, he's the one leading those raids during the Second World War. He's at the front. He's leading his men into battle. He's seeing them picked off one by one as they're going through daylight precision raids um, and, and, and being utterly decimated. He's not going to do that again. And so he comes up with a, an entire different way. And he takes those ideas that really he, he cut his teeth in during um, the Pacific campaign and that, that move towards firebombing and area bombing. And he, he pretty much carbon copies it and puts it into um, U.S. U.S. nuclear strategy um, from from that point onwards. You know, as 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 Arnold moves out of the picture, LeMay starts to rise. He's he's made the head of um, strategic air command, which is tiny, tiny at this point, tiny, tiny, tiny. And you know, anyone out there running a startup, go go and read LeMay to see about how he takes this this organization and makes it become this this gigantic behemoth. The, the most highly funded section of, of the U.S. military in history. It's crazy. And does it through a bootstrapping process. And so, you know, 
as you move forwards through this period, the more he takes on in terms of the responsibility as being that, that front line of, of American offensive and de defensive nuclear capabilities, as you start to get more of a, a red scare and, 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 and McCarthyism, and as you find out that the Soviet Union get the bomb in, in, in 1949, as the world moves away from any idea that the United Nations is, is going to be this, this center for peace that may even hold the atomic bomb, remember. You know, there's, there's the writings at the time by people like Stillard and, and, and Einstein who are saying that we need one world or none. We need to come together to contain this, this nuclear technology and stop it from proliferating or there will be no world at all. And Arnold's got a chapter in that book. And he says, he says yeah, I, I agree. I agree. But until then, I'm going to continue to develop air power capabilities. Um, until you, you all agree on this, I'm just going to make sure we've got some, some things in reserve ready to go. Um, and so he's very pragmatic at this point. And so I guess here's where you're right. LeMay builds on this. Um, and LeMay actually puts some of the money as a co-founder of RAND as well. He thinks it's a good idea at that time. Um, that com so that comes back to him. Uh, he ends up hating the, the, the scholars, the defense intellectuals at RAND. Because so LeMay goes and starts moving towards this area bombing idea, right? And he gets more and more money to make it achievable and more aircraft and more training and more bases and, uh, and everything else that, that he needs. Um, whereas the Rand Corporation and these defense intellectuals, people like, you know, Bernard Brody, uh, William Kaufman, uh, Albert Wallstatter, Roberta Wallstatter, uh, Alan Enthoven, all of these people who have been drafted in there, Herman Kahn, uh, people that, that you'll be familiar with if you've read works like uh, Fred Kaplan's Wizards uh, of Armageddon, or like I say, if you've, you've watched um, Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove looks like a combination of all of them put together in a, <laughs> in a weird way. And what their job is, and their whole point of establishing RAND at this point, especially their social sciences section, is to critique Air Force strategy now. Anyone who's been in the military might not like the idea of defense intellectuals coming in and picking around with, with their strategies. And, and LeMay certainly didn't like that. Their idea was, right, okay, well, LeMay wants to do this, this thing called counter value, right? So he wants to destroy entire cities, destroy the, the, the value of those entire cities in order to, to blunt the war making capacities, but also the, the morale of the population, you know, we haven't spoken enough about the morale element to this. Morale bombing is a key part of all of this throughout this history. And so that's what he develops. For those working at RAND, they start to think, well, actually, some of those early precision ideas might be kind of useful. And as, as we start to move towards more advancements in new technologies into the 50s and maybe into the 60s, maybe we can make it achievable. What if we have something called counterforce? Now, counterforce is where you strike just the enemy silos and the enemy war-making capacity, right? And so, again, it's for all of those reasons that I said earlier on when Arnold was discussing this through uh, pincher, broiler, and off-tackle was in order to make sure that you hit the target, to make sure that that is economically viable because you need less weapons with precision. You can, you can take one bomb, one target, you know, instead of what LeMay was doing where you need a shed load of bombs, um, thousands of bombs. I think we hit like 18,000 um, across three and a half thousand different targets. And then you've got to make sure you hit them three times and you've got to do these bomb runs. And, and what if those bombers don't get through? Well, then we should double it and make sure we have double the amount of bombers to make sure we hit that target. They're looking, at, that's what LeMay is doing. What they're doing at RAN is looking at very differently. And, and, and so they start to come up with this counterforce idea and they go at loggerheads to the point where LeMay actually bans the scholars at the RAN Corporation from getting um, top secret briefings and, and the intelligence they need. And so they're actually out of date 
um, during the late 1950s when they continue to critique LeMay. And one thing that they start to build some of their, um, their, their projections on and their strategic thought around is this out-of-date idea that there is a missile gap. And so they try and, and unseat LeMay, make him uncomfortable by pushing this idea of a missile gap. Um, it's very much something that becomes contentious during the, the election uh, year, 1959, 1960, when you've got Kennedy pushing against Eisenhower and Nixon. Uh, the idea that there is a missile gap, that the Soviet Union have far more missiles than the United States, that the United States is vulnerable, uh, that LeMay's idea of, of having all of these different air bases and air crews on rotation all the time. They're vulnerable. They don't have any underground uh, silos or hardened bunkers for these aircraft. Um, this is something written by Albert Wallstatter at the time, critiquing LeMay. And fascinatingly, and this is where I made the link, and I, I love doing this because I, I was able to interview Undersecretary of, of Defense of Kennedy, Alan Enthoven, who is one of the um, uh, original uh, kind of whiz kids at this time who'd come from the Rand Corporation. Uh, I spoke with, with Thomas Schilling before he passed, and um, I've, I've become good friends with Deirdre Henderson, who was JFK's uh, researcher at this point, and one of the heads of his brain trust. And what she said to me was, um, the Rand Corporation came to the attention of Kennedy, and he sent Deirdre over there to talk with Albert Wallstatter, Bernard Brody, William Kaufman, um, Roberta Wallstatter, all these people who were working there, to get ideas for the Kennedy campaign to take on the Eisenhower, the administration and the Nixon ticket um, with any kind of gems that they might have in terms of national security, nuclear war and defense. And one of them was this out of date idea of the missile gap, which then ends up being a core part of Kennedy having that narrow, narrow, narrow win over Nixon at the time. And so what does he do? Well, Kennedy runs with this success. And he says to Deirdre, draw up who from the Rand Corporation. I was, I was in the, the, um, the Kennedy Library and Archives in Boston. And I was going through all these papers and Deirdre's there and she's, she's written uh, Albert Wallstatter should be in this position. Alan Enthoven should be in this position. <laughs> William Kaufman from the Rand Corporation should be in this position. And we should bring them all in into the political establishment and they should be undersecretaries of defense and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so that's what they do. Not all the people at Rand want to be part of it, but loads of that Rand way of thinking around counterforce are brought in to the Kennedy administration. And it's here that they start to have this battle with LeMay. Now, LeMay, like I said, wasn't happy with them. There'd been these big debates, arguments, almost screaming matches between people at Rand and people in, in Strategic Air Command. Uh, there's one moment where I think it's William Kaufman from the Rand Corporation is talking with General Power. And Power says, you know, if there's, if there's two of us left and one of them, we win the war. And so Kaufman turns and says, well, you better hope they're a man and a woman because you kind of want to, want to procreate here and you know, maybe try and save the United States as going forward. He's being completely facetious. And it reminds it's, you again- it's a, it's, a great, it's a great line though. <laughs> it's, it's, a great, it's, a, it's a great line, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Herman Kahn, who wrote On Thermonuclear War, he, he called what, what LeMay was trying to do, he called it a wargasm, um, <laughs> where you just send all at once this, this massive preponderance, this spurt of force to try and destroy the, the Soviet Union. And also remember, the, the, the Sino-Soviet bloc, as it was called at the time, this wasn't just any limitation just to hit the Soviet Union. This was, if there was um, the murmurations of a, of a war coming, um, then you were going to have um, this sporadic knee-jerk response that would have seen hundreds of millions of people killed 
across the Soviet Union, across Eastern Europe, across China, and then the, the, the raging atomic fires would have gone into, into Western Europe as, as well. And so Rand, with their, they, they called it a rational way of thinking. They thought this might not be the best idea for the United States. And it's here, especially when, uh, I think it's Lemnitzer, and I've got a section in the book on this, where Lemnitzer briefs um, briefs Kennedy and his new Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, who is uh, the, the youngest president of the Ford uh, Motor Company at the age of 44. He brings him in, takes him straight out of that job um, and puts him as the Secretary of Defense. McNamara, who had worked as one of the analysts for LeMay during the Pacific campaign, by the way. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's ranks here. And there's issues with balances of power. They're all brought in. And these politicians then start telling LeMay and the rest of them what to do. And um, it's carnage. In, in the book, you go into a lot of detail of what becomes PSYOP 63, which then is very succinctly summed up by Robert McNamara as mad, which then goes down in, in history. It is and it isn't. It's okay. I, that, that, I think that's a common misconception. Okay, right? this this is good because I this is one of my things about Type 63 that I wasn't sure about because what it is is the the operational plan for is it strategic um I wrote the I see I've put the acronym down because I read it so many times in your book and I can't remember what it stands for. <laughs> Anyways, it's the plan, isn't it? That they they've the integrated operating plan. Yeah. That's the one that Kennedy's gonna go with. It becomes described as a lot of different things and i guess this is where mm. even in my mind it's still intertwined with the university of michigan speech where you know mm. the destruction line is i'm guessing i've read that or i'm remembering it wrong because the difference between them is something because it, it's issued and then mcnamara and his his whiz kids start doing other things so psyop 62 mm-hmm. so strategic integrated operating plan 62 which is very much the product of the Eisenhower, um, Nixon administration, and uh, Kennedy's way of thinking about war, this, this destructive way of thinking about bombardment, is brought into place, and then Kennedy is, is briefed on this and is you know, pretty much terrified and shocked and, and wants, wants not to have just this one fixed knee-jerk reaction, this spasmatic response to nuclear aggression, or say, for example, there's, a, there's an accidental strike on the United States, you know, he doesn't want it then to be thousands of, of, of bombs and missiles fired all at once at the, at the Sino-Soviet bloc. Instead, he wants something that he ends up terming flexible response, right? And, and then having the ability to choose targets and limit nuclear war if it has to break out and to, to maybe be able to just start off by hitting um, counter-force targets, war-making capacity, military targets, and then, you know, if you need to, go from there. All seems to make sense, right? And so all of this then gets ingrained in PSYOP 63. And this is, this is very much a, a product of, of key thinkers to have moved from the Rand Corporation into the halls of, of power. Um, they're very much influencing the way Kennedy and those around him at the highest levels are, are thinking at this point in time. And the idea is that if there is, it is a nuclear war, PSYOP 63 is in place so that you have those options for the president. And you have those options to be more proportionate and discriminate in your targeting of the enemy. And you have the ability to be more precise in your bombardments. And it all links back to these kind of foundational ideas of precision that have been floating around since 1917. For, for, to be clear, this book is an intellectual history. It tracks 
which sounds really over the top, but it's like a history of ideas, right? It, it's so pompous of an academic to say, but it tracks this, this idea of precision. All I've done is track this idea of precision and seen how it's been dismissed, forgotten, and, and re-brought up and re-implemented over the last 100 years. And, and, and for Kennedy, it really is a core moment because it's brought back in through Science 63. Now, LeMay, very cleverly, completely derails this. Because <laughs> he says, all right then, love it, great. I tell you what, I'm head of Strategic Air Command. I'll make sure we're ready for PSYOP 63. I tell you what, let me just see what targets we need to hit if we want to have this flexible response and we want to make sure that we can blunt the ability of the, of the Soviet Union, uh, of Moscow, to fire its, its um, siloed nuclear missiles or its forward-operating, ever-ready uh, aircraft to bomb the United States. Let me see what the cost of that would be. Let me see how many targets there are. Oh, turns out there is quite literally an unlimited amount of targets because we don't quite know where all of them are, but we can make a guess. And I tell you what, I'm going to guess into maybe the, the thousands here. So we have an out of control defense budget at this point because LeMay is saying I need thousands more uh, missiles and bombers and everything I need in place to make sure that we can work SARP 63 into planning. Whereas what McNamara Secretary of Defense really wanted to do at that time was to, to limit the investment in nuclear war, to, to limit LeMay's arsenal, not to expand it. And so he came up with this idea of mutually assured destruction as a way to set a limit on how much you needed in weapons to ensure the mutual destruction of your enemy and thus to make sure that you have a potent, reliable, and credible deterrence posture. And so really, at a set written policy level, PSYOP 63 remains in place. And then the declaratory policy that you get in McNamara's speeches is of mutually assured destruction. And that's a way of saying to LeMay, shut up, here is your set limit on what you need to have to destroy the enemy. You don't need any more than that. And that's the way it will go. So that's the difference between the two. So Matt's gone down in history as this terrible, terrible thing where everybody dies, but actually it's a, it's a, it's a budgetary term. <laughs> which is very much in line with McNamara. Yeah, of course. And I would say it's still something which enshrines and is the foundation mm -hmm. to American nuclear strategy today. All this way of thinking, all of this way of thinking from SIOP 63 is very much still the way that nuclear war is thought about in the United States. We're going to jump ahead because we've been, we've, we've been, I can trust me that the whole McNamara stuff, especially as he sticks around for so long. Yeah. And, yeah just that, that's probably a whole different part, but experience of Vietnam introduction of laser guided weapons that don't really work. They get better and they get better until one morning in 1991, when we turn on the telly <laughs> and it, it's all gone very science fictiony. Now I interviewed John Boyd, who was a self fighter pilot yep. and he, he made the clear point that it was great when the weapons didn't go squirrely. That was, that was his word. Yeah. And that is something that I've, I've sort of said a, a few times and from reading the stuff we saw on CNN and the BBC and Storm and Norman with his little yeah. video screen, that was just the stuff that worked, but it meant that publicly it meant we finally had lived the dream and we were a precise operational unit. The most precise war in history is what they what they called it at the time yeah 
TM, trademark. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I guess for me, the purpose of this book was to fill that gap. We should point out that all this stuff's your epilogue. Yeah, all the, all yeah, the yeah. Stuff is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've not even got into the book yet. No, no, we have. Um, but it's it's this it's this trying to fill this gap between this well-documented understanding of trying to achieve precision during the Second World War, and I've mentioned some of the books that covered that, and then this burst of writing in the 1990s around high-tech precision weapons, precision missiles, and drones, something that we've continued to be obsessed with today. And you know, I'm probably the most obsessive nut about them that there is. I've been working on this for a very long time now. And one of my core areas is looking at the past, present and future of drone warfare. I'm, I'm pretty sure Chris Fuller will fight you for that that title. Nah, nah. Chris is, Chris is the world expert on the CIA and drones. And he's top notch on that. He did a very nice review of the, of the book for me. Um, he's, a, and, he's a very he's a very nice man. I and Chris's, Chris's book, we'll see it shoot it. Oh, good because yeah. you know who knew that the cia were trying to use small drones to knock off gaddafi in the 1980s and instead of we thinking it being kind of like isis in 2015-16 who were pioneering these small drone technologies it was actually the, the cia back then but that is a different podcast because you can't yes. document all of this history it, it's 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 yeah it's one zach and i did on 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 his history ages ago we had chris on it was yeah it was, it was oh, really nice fun. yeah that's great um but Link so, in the description below and all, all that business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the one of the aims that I wanted to do was to fill that gap. So how do we get from 1945 to 1991, right? And a lot of that was through these discussions around nuclear missiles and trying to achieve pinpoint precision in, in the event of, of nuclear war. So it's, it's all about nuclear technologies and nuclear strategy. Um, the key thing about that is once SIOP 63 is put into place, and once you have mutually assured destruction set into place, there really isn't the as much investment as a lot of those who'd worked at RAND and then in the Kennedy administration had wanted into the technology to achieve it. In fact, there's very little in the, in, the, in the 1960s, and it really only starts to pick up as we get these ideas of a revolution in military affairs from the 1970s and 80s and then through to the 90s onwards, right? So the development of um, better information transmission um, of... Um, you know, your computer technologies, being able to actually have computer systems on board these, the so computer guidance systems. And then, of course, the, the breakthroughs in, in, in GPS and, and satellite technology as well, which are the key thing to making sure that you can hit this target over long distances. And one of the people who pushes this forward during this period is, is Albert Wallstatter. Now, Albert Wallstatter continues working on this through his entire life until he dies, I think, in, in maybe 1990, 1996. And he, he writes this report with the Undersecretary of Defense under Reagan, uh, Freddie Clay, in 1988, called Discriminate Deterrence. And he argues at this point in 1988, he says, actually, during the 70s and the 80s, we developed enough precision capabilities so that in the event of nuclear war, I don't think we actually have to use nuclear weapons anymore. Instead, due to the increased payload capacity and the destructive capacity that comes from conventional precision missiles and the ability to strike a, a Soviet silo with a, a long range, let's say like a Tomahawk cruise missile with an increased payload on it, um, you, can, you can deter the Soviet Union by just having conventional weapons. Because if you fire those conventional weapons at them, that'll destroy their silo. You don't need to take the nuclear option. And so he says there is a discriminate deterrence. And he builds on these ideas of being discriminate, precise, proportionate in war. Now, 1988, 
these sort of thoughts aren't put in place into the uh, the ability to deter uh, the Soviet Union because you know you, you don't really need to. Something happens around this period of time and the, the whole world changes. But a war does occur, a war that perhaps few expected, very much a kind of old-fashioned type of war that emerges in 1991, 1999-1991, when you have the Gulf War, the first Gulf War. And it's here that those ideas around conventional precision strike and conventional precision technologies being partnered with drones, by the way, at this period, that they start to come to the fore. And there's one person who is really enamored by this, this idea, although he didn't read Wollstatter's work. Instead, he'd been reading some of the Second World War um, writings around what they got right and wrong with precision. Is Lieutenant General Dave Detchula, who is, um, is, is the ghostwriter, some of the key strategies at this point under Secretary of the Air Force Rice. And he, he's drafted in as America's preparing for war in the Gulf. Um, and you, you start to bring in some of the, the, the key strategies that are implemented into the Gulf War. And, you know, he calls it effects-based bombing at this point, but he'd been on holiday prior to the start of the war, and he'd been reading, I think he was saying he was reading Hayward Hansel's work about the things he'd got wrong in trying to implement precision bombing over Japan, and he'd been reading other work of the early air power thinkers, and he was reading all of this, all the things we were discussing earlier, all of the lessons that they've had, and he was like, we've got the technology to achieve this now. I wonder if we can do this in some way in the Gulf. And so it's here that you have this literal intellectual connection again to, to to be that academic again this this link between the thoughts around precision from the second world war through to today that come into and are implemented into american warfare and you could argue that since the gulf war the united states hasn't looked back with its investment in precision weapons precision technologies and precision strategies you look through the wars of the 1990s you move through to to, to a kosovo which is known as the perfect war uh, a war where there are, are zero combat fatalities for the United States. It's, a, it's an air power war. Um, I remember, I think it was um, a quote from General Wesley Clark that's in the book. He's quoted from one of his press conferences. that He says that couples walked along the Danube and dined at sidewalk cafes as the bombardment went on around them. Such was the precision uh, deployed in that conflict. And of course, Afghanistan is meant to be very much a carbon copy of, of Kosovo in many ways. You send in the drones on October 7th, 2001, the first armed drone, that predator, to try and take out Mullah Omar. You send in the precision air power to take out the war-making capacity of the Taliban, the infrastructure. Turns out that doesn't take very long. There isn't so much infrastructure, and it's a very different enemy. And you get embroiled in the longer term into this prolonged, protracted nation-building ground campaign that it was never meant to be. By November 2001, the United Nations has already started to pass resolutions to look at nation-building in Afghanistan. And of course, you move forwards. And then Obama, who takes on this, this poison chalice of the illegal war in Iraq and, and the, the, the good war in, in Afghanistan, and he says to the American people, you know, at this point, we've got too many troops on the ground here. 60% of our fatalities are due to improvised explosive devices that we're finding it really hard to counter. How do we continue to fight this war on terror and reduce the cost to American lives? And boom, precision technologies, drones, almost like if you think in the minds of a Gorel or a, or a Mitchell or the political thinkers at that point with the heavy casualties of the First World War, Obama's faced with these heavy casualties, this promise to the American people, this election winning promise that he's going to, to win the wars and draw down the other wars, well, drones become his panacea. And Obama is known as the drone president 
at, at this point in, in time. And it's from him and from that period that you really see the, the dramatic uptick in the amount of, of, of drone strikes globally that take place. And of course, these are looked at by the rest of the world. You think, hmm, this looks pretty good. This is interesting. I wonder if we can do this. And Obama's whole speeches, his entire justification for the incorporation of drones into the American military machine is that they are, I, I quote the president right now, they are part of a just war that is proportionate, discriminate, and a war in last resort. Simply put, they save lives. He calls them pinpoint precise weapons. Precision and surgical strike are used time and time again. You're almost borrowing from the handbook of this industrial web theory and precision bombing. Does it work? Well, Depends who you want to talk to about that. There are certainly a large amount of civilian casualties. But either way, you look at how the rest of the world is looking at the United States and learning, we want these drones. And this is what I analyze now, and it's what I analyze in the end of the book. How these precision technologies, which were once seen as this panacea to reducing the costs of risks and war for Obama, to hunting terrorists around the world, to, 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 to getting the perpetrators of 9-11, how these precision technologies are now in the hands of terrorist actors, how they're in the hands of hostile states and how they're being used in really destructive ways in order to strike Western targets, Western forces, US diplomatic sites, key points of energy infrastructure, um, the, the, the centers of European cities. Uh, you know, I never thought I'd be saying that when it came to when I first started writing the book, but you know, Iranian produced, Russian owned and deployed Shahed 136s and 131s are, are the, the latest incarnation of these precision technologies that have proliferated around the world. And, you know, just to, to finish off this point, as I stated, I, I gave the most nerve wracking address of my, my life. I addressed uh, the UN Security Council on this, this issue uh, in New York, sat around that table. I became a nation state for the day. I had, I had, I had United States, Russia and James Rogers uh, just, just around the table there. And um, I used that, that newly found sovereignty to, to make it clear that um, 113 different nation states and at least 65 non-state actors now have access to these precision technologies. And it brings me back to that original point at the beginning that I bored your listeners with. Precision is in the eye of the beholder. Precision is, it's up to you how you use it. It can be deeply destructive or it can be used to try and reduce the cost, the risks and the horrors of war. It's interesting because I, th I think that the simplistic thing to say is we've come full circle in this conversation. And yet, as you point out, how these weapon systems are, are being used and could be used in future means that, th again, that word precise gets very, very imprecise in its, in its use. Because, you know, like, like you turning on the news and seeing swarms of drones flying into to Moscow of all places. And yeah, that was a busy day. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> but some, something, none of us, I, I suppose, even, even with, with the war in Ukraine, we, we would, we would think so. But anyways, James, I'm, I've been telling people about this book since, since I finished it. And it's, it's been great to chat to you about because it, it is, it's superb. It's, I'm going to sort of hold up to the camera. It's not very long. That could be the font. I'm going to leave the whole font discussion in, into the thing, but it's, it's well worth everybody's read because we're going to be hearing a lot more about this, the drone subject, but to understand how we've gotten to it, I think is important, especially as this will be going out the day before a certain TV series about, precision bombing hits all the airs and that's going to cloud things 
as I'm still not well, I, think, I think the I think the series that gets it most right is probably Catch Twenty Two. Um yes. the latest one put together by George Clooney, which I thought was just absolutely fantastic and is massively underrated. But yes, um you can call it short. It's over two hundred pages. You didn't write it. I mean I'm the one who slogged over it. <laughs> To try <laughs> to get it out. I'm, the, con- I'm the consumer, sir. I just ask the silly questions. Just a cheeky hundred-year history. Um, but yeah, Precision, History of American Warfare. Uh, it is out now at all good bookstores, all the usual places. Uh, I think it's like 15 quid um, on Amazon at the moment or about 20 quid direct from the, um, the bookstore. Uh, you can use the code WARFARE30 and get 30% off. So take it around to about 14.99, which is always helpful. And um, I'll be doing a book tour in March, uh, down from Edinburgh through to, to York and to London, just talking with IDWM Duxford at the moment as well and in Oxford. And I'll release those those tour dates and all the details uh, on my Instagram at James Patton Rogers. Fantastic. And I'll buy you a beer. When Sounds good to me. And ladies and gentlemen, we don't judge books by their cover. The cover <laughs> on this is fantastic. I'm, I'm sorry. They've done an They've absolute- done well brilliant job um it may be even better than the book who knows but (laughs) yes yeah judge a book by its cover you know it doesn't matter what's inside it if you've been thoroughly (laughs) bored by this podcast then just buy the book because it looks good on your shelf and that's will be my my entire ethos for my future writing of books is just make sure the cover looks good right perfect yeah well it looks great on your shelf next to ike behind you so it's it's all good but honestly all joking aside it, it was a superb read and has made me need to dust off a few of a few of the old books that have been up on the shelf for a while to get back into that sort of post-war melee of discussion and, and thought. But James, thank you so much for, for joining us. Is is your podcast coming back in the future once you put uh-huh. once the baby starts behaving itself? So warfare is brought to an end. Um, we're not going to go back to that, although I loved it so much. And oh, you know, you, you know, book. running a podcast, it's it's driven by the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and I oh, just fantastic. I had the most amazing three years um, presenting that over, I think, 400 episodes in the end. It was fantastic. But um, we are going to be bringing a new podcast out in oh, 2024. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, stay tuned. It's super exciting. Can't reveal too much at the moment. But again, um, follow me along on, on Instagram at uh, James Patton Rogers. We'll make sure we share all those details of the book tour as well. James, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I cannot thank James Rogers enough for joining us here on the podcast. And like he said, if you would like a copy of Precision, A History of American Warfare, you can get it from the Manchester University Press website and use the code WARFARE30 to get 30% off, which is fab. Of course, you can go to the Damcasters bookshop and get 10% going towards the pot, which would be nice. But it's a superb read, and it's not just the cover that we joke about, which is absolutely stunning. It covers a lot of ground in a thin tome, and as you've heard from the pod, in which we've gone on for for quite a while, it's rather deep, but it's accessible and understandable, which is important and vital when you cover this sort of subject. So when James is in town, we'll try to get together and do something more be sure to follow him on his Instagram, which is at James Patton Rogers. All the links are in the description. And of course, if you fancy joining us as a damn castier, you can do so from just £3 a month. Keychains going in January. And of course, if you join now, you can join us for our first Zoom social, which will be the first weekend in February. So check out our Patreon link below. 
Check out Pima Air and Space Museum. Check out 909 Apparel, who keep sending me great clothes to wear, and they're nice and warm on a cold day. Thank you for all your support. Thank you for continuing to watch. Masters of the Air review drops tomorrow, so be ready for that. Take care of yourselves. Until next time, bye-bye. The Damcasters is hosted and produced by Matt Bone and is a Bony Abroad podcast production. To learn more about our podcast and check out our previous episodes, head to www.thedamcasterspod.com.